you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me uh, once again, if you, of course, if you listen to the Film and Water Podcast just a couple of days ago, you heard me and my guest, Emily Scott, talking about the big 1982 big-budget musical, Annie. And now we're here to talk about the Annie Treasury Edition from Marvel Comics because that's the thing. So, Emily, welcome to Treasury Guest. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, delighted to be talking and yet more about Annie. I could talk about this all day. Yeah, who would have guessed that we could get two whole shows in one week out of, out of the Annie uh, movie? But before we talk about the Annie comic book, I need to ask you about the Treasury comics because I know that you're a bunch of years younger than me, and I was around nine or ten when the treasuries pretty much went belly up as a format so i i was around for them but they i wasn't around long before they disappeared so the the treasury comic does not exist for you as a child at all right you never had any of these no no i had i've seen some of them since then like i've you know in like comic book stores uh, things like that, but I have never owned one. I never read one as a kid. It's the sort of thing. If I had come across one, I think I would have really enjoyed it. I used to read a lot of like they do little paperback books of comic strips, you know, like right, right. Uh, Beetle Bailey or um, which. It's weird now when I think about how much Beetle Bailey I read as a kid. Um, <laughs> or like Garfield or sure, uh, you sure. know um, County and Peanuts. Yeah, so I, I love that stuff. So I think if I had come across these, I would have been really into them. But no, I had never, I had never seen this particular one before. Interesting. Okay, um, like I said, you think it probably would have appealed to you I, I, as an adult? Have you ever been tempted to pick any of them up when you've seen them at cons or stores or stuff like that? If I had, if I saw this one, I might pick it up. Okay. Yeah, just because I liked them. If I saw one for a movie that I really enjoyed, or if I picked it up and it looked like really amusing, maybe. Um, no, I definitely would pick this up just for like the nostalgia, if nothing else. Right, and well, that's it was interesting about what what as the Treasury started to go out as a format, and both DC and Marvel stopped doing them around eighty one, eighty two, essentially. DC. Uh, DC ended their run with a lot of original material and some really great books, and then they kind of stopped doing them. Marvel basically pushed off all their licensing to the treasuries. If you look at the last couple of treasuries that Marvel released, they were all movie adaptations like Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, G.I. Joe, the Smurfs even. Uh, and then you got this Annie Treasury Edition, and, you know, the adaptation of the, the comic of the movie is by Tom DeFalco, Wynn Mortimer, and Vince Coletta with colors by George Russo. And, you know, I know I, everybody, everybody has their opinions about Vince Coletta. We all know that he kind of was the guy you got to get it done really quickly. And there's nothing in this particular book that screams out 
to be printed at a large size. You know, there's not like, oh, my God, the sumptuous artwork. I really got to look at this as a, <laughs> as a big thing. But the reason I think this was done is because the treasuries were designed to build uh, – not build. They were designed to appeal – to an audience outside of comic book fans. And so this, these were the kind of books that would have been stocked at a department store or like a convenience store or like a, like a, like a Woolworths or, you know, like a five and dime. And that's the kind of thing they were hoping like a young uh, little girl like yourself would have seen this. Like, you know, they were hoping that like a nine-year-old girl in 1982 would have seen the Annie treasury edition and begged her parents to pick it up. So on the surface, you're like, why would they do an anti-treasure edition? Well, it's because it was a licensed <laughs> property, and they wanted to get their money worth out of it. I mean, Marvel released the anti-treasury, the anti-adaptation. All it's all the same material as a magazine. They released it as Marvel Super Special number twenty-three, a treasury, which we're going to wow. talk about, and a two-issue regular-sized miniseries. So they were they blanketed uh, <laughs> the, the newsstands with this anti-thing. Now, the weird the weird thing about this is. The Annie movie came out in June. The magazine came out in May, but the Treasury came out in September. Why would you put the Treasury out three months after the movie was out of theaters? Like, what a strange – like, you're guaranteeing that nobody was going to care about it at that point. That seems like an odd choice to me. You're going to leave them wanting more. Yeah, I don't know. That's very, very weird to me. I mean – I don't know. I wonder sometimes – I think back – to uh, you know, growing up pre pre internet, pre a lot of things, and I wonder if I forget sometimes things just moved a little slower. Like if you think about the different, you know, now it's like huge big budget movies come out, and I don't even notice they've come out in theaters because there's just such an endless barrage now. Right, right. Of like entertainment and advertisement and whatever, whatever, and I wonder if. You know, but, but at the time, you know, in the 80s, like, you know, growing up in the 80s, like, there was, like, the movie of the summer. Yep. Whatever yep. was, like, the big hit of the summer. And you saw that movie everywhere. And even after it was out of theaters, I think sometimes you would still, like, it was just so prevalent in pop culture, whatever those big movies were. And I wonder if maybe that's, maybe three months wasn't as long as it, as it seems like now. You know, that's a good point. Maybe so. I remember being a kid seeing Ghostbusters in a theater, and it played for like four months. Like, I just kept going to see yeah. Ghostbusters. And so, yeah, maybe you're <laughs> right. Maybe they, maybe they were figuring Annie was going to be such a massive hit that it was still going to be playing in late August, and therefore we could put out a treasury in September and it would appeal to people. I don't know. I, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Maybe so, because they, they, they did expect things to have much kind of a longer tail back then. Because, of course, you know, there wasn't home video. I mean, you know, you, you had right. to see it in the theater other than watching it on television. That, 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 was, that was it. You're not going to get a chance to, to see it again. So the, the Treasury has a photo cover of Eileen Quinn and Sandy, and it just says Marvel Annie Treasury Edition. And it has a little Spider-Man blurb on it. And then the opening uh, page has got a photo of Little Orphan Annie and Daddy Warbucks coming down the stairs. And it says, let the show begin. And that, to me, I, I'm guessing it's they're trying to kind of get you in that feeling of, of – what the movie was of like, you're going to go see this big spectacular adventure. It's kind of get, it's kind of setting the scene. Cause you would think that the first page would just be the first page of the story, but instead it's got this little, almost like a preface, <laughs> you know, it's a kind of getting you ready. All right, everybody. So I have to, I got to ask you now that you've had a chance to read it. Like, what did you, what did you think of reading the movie 
in this format? First of all, what did you think of it as a comic book? And then did it add anything to you seeing it in like such a large size? One thing that I thought was impressive about it was how well it actually adapts the movie. You know, and you're thinking about when, when you think about an adaptation and from one medium to another and how well does it translate and how well did they take the essence of the story or what's good or what do people like about the story and translate it into another medium. And you're talking about something that's now gone from like a comic strip to a stage musical to a movie and now back right. into print. Right. And it's like it's like putting some it's like playing a game of telephone or putting something through Google Translate and translating it through four languages. Well what have you got now? And the end result is still a very cohesive thing that I think whatever it is about this character or these characters, whatever charm it is that propels them through all these mediums, I think still comes through. And it, you know, again, I've seen this movie so many times that like, I know it very well. I know it almost verbatim um, scene from scene and it's all basically here. They get basically everything into this book, and they've distilled the essence of it, you know. And again, it's a musical, so you think that would be much harder than, you know, um, just a movie where everybody's talking at each other, and you could just basically take the dialogue and put it down. Um, even cutting out the songs, which that's what it is. It is a, you know, it's a movie of a musical, um, I think they did quite well at that. And, you know, there are points where, like, um, in place of the song, a character will just speak a line of dialogue, you know, right, speak right. a line that is, like, um, like the scene where Annie first goes to Daddy Warbuck's house and um, uh, they're explaining to her, oh, we're going to take care of you and do these things for you. And Annie's like, I think I'm going to like it here. And in my head, I'm singing the song, you know, I think I'm gonna like it here. Like I'm singing it along in my head as they're saying it. So it's almost like you're getting the soundtrack in your head as you read it. Yeah, that's a, I, that's a really interesting point because uh, there have been other musicals that have been adapted into comic books. I talked on a previous film in water about Xanadu. Uh, and, you know, right, I would imagine, yeah, you imagine that. I'm trying to picture, you know, like you're saying, we're gonna adapt the most sound and visual of of all movie genres and we're going to take out the sound part and you're like well how the hell do i do it and the the, the way they approached it was they actually tried to work the music into that with these sort of montages but tom defalco uh here the future marvel editor and of course wrote many 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 comic books i think he wisely just said okay we're just going to cut all the musical numbers and by cutting every musical number and as you said giving somebody a line of dialogue which sort of represents what they were about to sing about it allows you to get the entire plot of the movie in. Uh, and that, I was impressed by that because, yeah, it really, this thing does have all the same beats. It's got, it opens up with Miss Hannigan's orphanage, and you've got Annie, and we see that she's a tough little, you know, tough little Mustang, and she sticks up for her <laughs> friends. Uh, and they get all, then they do the thing where she tries to escape in the laundry basket. She meets Sandy. She gets dragged back. Uh, Miss Farrell comes to, a, you know, we were looking to adopt somebody. We're going to meet. Daddy Warbucks. There's the the, the the action scene, one of the few action scenes uh, in this whole movie of where the bomb gets thrown by the Bolshevik and and uh, <laughs> the Asp and and uh, Punjab get rid of it and stuff like that. So it really like 
this the scene where they go to the movies where you talked about in in the film and water where they like that's like a 20 minute sequence in the movie is basically distilled to one panel in this comic book where they go to the movies and yet somehow you get across this was a 20 minute scene in the movie right. in this one page because they get you know there's the whole song before they go where um Annie and uh I can't think and Grace sing the song about like what a movie is and uh, uh and then they go to the movie and then there's the whole like you know like Rockette chorus line girls mm-hmm. and then they watch a bunch of like this is all on this one page somehow like all of that and that was that was really like just from a composition standpoint very impressive to me that they somehow conveyed and even, like, uh, you know, the fact that they watch a bunch of this movie and, again, that you see this big preface, like, just all of that is in, like, the bottom third of the page right, somehow. Right. And you get the, like, chaos of it. And, you know, for Annie, like, this the huge spectacle of it. She's in the middle with her dog for some reason going, <laughs> leaping lizards. Oh, I guess it's because. No, wait, why is the dog there? Do they take the dog to the movie? They do, they do. Yeah, they take the dog to the movie because he buys out the theater. He buys out the whole theater so they can bring whoever they want. Daddy Warbucks. No cell phones here, damn it. You know, no, yeah. Who's telling Daddy Warbucks he cannot take his dog to the movie? Exactly. Nobody. Yeah, nobody. He can get away with it. I I will say there were moments here where because they have to distill certain scenes down and because of it, it, you're reading it. It's not actors saying it. It does seem a little strange. Like the scene, and we mentioned this in the film in Water, where he's where Daddy Warbucks is having breakfast with with Miss Farrell, and they're starting to kind of flirt. And she's like, you know, why do you love money and power so much? They're never going to love you back. And that's the interchange where he says, "Your teeth are crooked." And she's like, I'll have them fixed. And he says, I like them crooked. I'll leave them. Now, when you have Albert Finney and and Anne Reinking delivering that dialogue, it it has a charm to it because it's humans. But when it's distilled to one panel, it's almost Dada-esque. It's so bizarre to read it, this this back and forth where you're like, what what is happening? Why are these people saying these strange things to one another? Your teeth are crooked. I'll have them fixed. I like them crooked. I'll leave them. And it's all in one panel. You're like... Uh, okay, I don't know what that like. You couldn't like you had to leave that part in. Like really? No, you are absolutely right. I think this is definitely a much different experience for somebody who has seen the movie. Right. If somebody had not seen the movie and read this, this would be a whole a whole other ball of wax. Like one 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 moment that stood out for me was um, at the very beginning when uh, you know you're they're establishing Miss Hannigan as a character, you know how she mistreats these girls and makes them do all the work, and um, she's got this thing where like she makes the girls say "I love you, Miss Hannigan" yeah. to her, and uh, in the movies you never really feel like the orphans are in any real danger, and maybe part of that's because it's Carol Burnett, and part of it's because you know they're not really, you know, right, right. Um, but there's this panel where, um, you know, uh, Miss Hannigan's shadow was looming over her. Yeah. Yes. And it's like, you're like, oh my God, what is she about to do to Annie? Mm-hmm. Like, terrifying. Or like other things you have time to reflect on. Um, like the fact that Miss Hannigan is constantly trying to bone every <laughs> male she comes in contact with. And these little girls the whole time are just always around. Yep. 
Yeah, she's she's uh, Miss Hannigan's on on the make all the time. She's a very lonely lady, as they establish. The Plus, time. she's a boozer. She's constantly got a bottle of liquor in her hand, like an open full bottle of liquor in her hand at all times. Her her bathtub is never not full of gin. Right. Yep. I'm, I'm like, when does she ever bathe? Like, she yeah. must bathe at some point. She's always trying to get with all these guys. She must bathe. But yeah, like, I guess so. Like, I don't know. To put liquor in your tub is uh, not, not, not hygienic. I'm glad you mentioned that panel because that's actually my favorite panel in the whole book is that shot of Annie with the shadow loom because <laughs> it's, it's really atmospheric. And I, I wanted to mention this specifically. I talked about who, who did this, and it was penciled by Wynne Mortimer, inked by Vince Coletta, and colored by George Russo. Now, Wynne Mortimer had been around a really long time. He was an old hand at comic books. And I think for the most part, Marvel was giving him work at stuff. He had a very, very simple style, almost coloring book simple. And I think Marvel was kind of giving him stuff that they didn't think – you know, they didn't have a lot of, they weren't worried about it. Like, he did a lot of issues of Spidey Super Stories, which was aimed at children. So I think that was kind of like, they could give him, like, special projects like this. And Vince Coletta, as everybody knows, had a reputation as the guy that you get it when you need to book out in a weekend. He was that guy. So they didn't, I don't think they were paying a whole lot of attention to the artwork on this. But I will say, the colorist, George Russo, who is, again, another old-handed Marvel, he does really beautiful work in this treasury because he actually, instead of doing typical flat comic book coloring, he kind of adds tones and little, little almost watercolory washes to it. And like that panel that you mentioned where Annie is getting loomed over, they put like a little bit of like, like flush on her cheeks because she's nervous. And there's lots of little details like that. And it gives the whole book a more illustrative feel than say your typical Spider-Man comic book. And I, I actually appreciate the fact that they went to that extra – I don't know if that was Marvel went to George Russo and said, this is what the look we want, or they gave it to Russo and Russo did that on his own. But it, it fits the, the material a lot better than maybe just doing flat color, and I was just kind of impressed by that. No, I was actually – I was – you know, I, I, I'm not a huge comic book reader, especially comics from – the 80s, so right. I don't have a lot to compare it to what it would have looked like to comics at the time, but most of the comics that I've read were, like, 90s, you know, in that in that time. But, like, I was similarly impressed with the colors. I think you hit on it with the – it looks almost like a watercolor. Yeah. There's this effect on things. There's a lot of and tones it, in here, yeah. I find myself, like, you know, again, even – it was easy for me to, like, almost want to skim it because I just know it so well – and I know the story so well, but the it looks so beautiful that it definitely invited me to keep looking at the page longer because I wanted to like take in like it's very complex. It looks complex. Mm-hmm. It just looks a lot like like you know again since it's not a flat color, it just looks a lot more detailed and sumptuous. Yeah, and again, you than, have to right, and you have to be able to tell things very clearly when you're condensing a two hour movie into like 39 pages, uh, even with taking out all the musical numbers. I mean, again, there is some very, very contracts of the final page of the book is got that action sequence. And then the, the whole final act of the movie where they're doing the big musical number is condensed into one panel where it's just Annie and daddy Warbucks at his house and they're having the big party and it says Annie in the sky and she's like, I love you, Daddy Warbucks. I really do. Like that, that in, the, in the movie, that's like 
I don't know, almost like a five, six, seven minute sequence. And here it's one panel. Like they, they just, they're like, we got to get out of here. So here we go. We're done. <laughs> it did seem like it ended a little abruptly, but I don't mind because what else, what else from that scene could you really effectively like, it's mostly just people dancing around. Right. So I love though that they kept, uh, you know, we, we talked uh, previously, we were talking about the movie. We talked about, you know, Miss Hannigan makes, I guess, a face turn and is okay at the end to be at this big party. And she's on an elephant. Right, yeah. You know, Carol Burnett is riding around an elephant that's wearing a blanket that says Annie in sparkly <laughs> letters on it. And they kept that. That is, I appreciate so much that they kept the elephant with the Annie blanket. Is that like every little girl's dream to have like a blanket with their name stenciled in crystal, like hanging on an, an animal? That feels very little girl wish fulfillment kind of thing. <laughs> It's one of those things I didn't know I wanted it until you asked. <laughs> yes, yeah. I guess so. Now that you mentioned it, I will take that, please. We're, we're going to have to talk to your significant other about putting that together for you for your next birthday, of getting an elephant <laughs> with, a, with a big blanket over his head. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, it's, this thing is meant – it was $2 at the time, and it was meant as a keepsake. You know, again, we mentioned this in the film in Water. Annie came out in 1982. This was just before the video age. And so where for the most part, when a movie stopped playing, other than seeing it in, in, in the th- seeing it on television, you probably were never going to see it again. And so that's why there was so much uh, value placed on these keepsake items. Because if you were a little kid and you loved Annie and you loved the movie, oh, you could beg your mom or your dad to, choke up, to, to fork over the $2 and you would have this book that you would have forever. Because, you know, it was – and especially a treasury if you're a little kid, it's a giant book. You know, it looks really cool. Like – did you enjoy? Did you get anything out of it being just a giant comic book? Because you said you don't have any familiarity with the format. Oh my god! When you're a kid and you're like, "That's bigger than books usually are." I'm getting more bang for my buck. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm a little kid. I have to beg people to buy me things, so I have to get the most out of this I possibly can. Yes, that ticks that box. Absolutely. I'm reading it like this is. An amusingly large comic book. Right. I enjoy. I you know even as an adult, I'm like, ah, I have value here. You know, I've got. Well, um, I, I do. Also, wanna... too, something I love. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, no, go ahead. Uh, in in the back of the book, and I don't know if this is the case for other. Are there there are other treasury editions of movies, right? Like, yes. This is yes. not the only. Do they all have? I love in the back. There's interviews. And biographies. Um, there's a filmography for the director, John Huston. Um, you know, in, in a pre-internet time, this would have been uh, glorious to me. Yeah, I mean... You know, um... as, a, as a kid, I would have been like, ooh, I can find out about Bernadette Peters. Like, cause, you know, these are actors I really like. You know, I already loved Carol Burnett from the, you know, I had seen her show as well. I would have loved to have gotten this and been like, tell me more about Albert Benet. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of um, the, the bonus features, uh, as it were, in this, this is pretty extensive because they have a large section after the adaptation called Meet the Stars. And it gives these, like, sort of page-long biographies. And it starts with Eileen Quinn and does, moves over to Albert Finney, Cal Burnett, Bernadette Peters, Tim Curry, and Ryan King, and even Ray Stark, the producer. Uh, and then there's a large two whole pages on John Huston, complete with his filmography, which, again, you're talking about, you know, you mentioned a pre-internet age. 
this is like an IMDb page. Before IMDb, yeah. it, lists, it lists every one of his movies as a director or as a writer, which if you're like a John Huston fan, what an amazing resource this is to be able to sit there and go, oh, I've never heard of this one. I've never heard of this one. You know, I mean, good luck finding any of these movies. But nevertheless, like, it's really pretty cool. <laughs> and then there is a an interview with Leonard Starr, who was then drawing the uh, the Annie strip at that point. So, yeah, this thing does have some nice bonus features. They did do that generally. For all the movie adaptations, they had that extra, extra material because again they were selling the movie. I mean, Marvel didn't own the rights to Annie as a comic book, so it wasn't like they were going to sell other Annie comics from this. This was about selling this either Treasury or miniseries or magazine because it was all the same material repurposed across three formats. But yeah, I love all that stuff, I, and it's neat because it's a it's a children's comic book. And yet it mentions, like, adult stuff like the other movies they've done. You know, you're getting into, like, Albert Finney's film career, which is, like, you know, mostly heavily adult-related <laughs> material. And here it's mentioning, right. you know, the Maltese Falcon or Chinatown. And you're like, what other comic book is going to mention Chinatown? You know, like, that's not a thing. I'm just trying to imagine some kid, you know, who loves Annie, loves this movie, reading this. And then she's like, you know, hey, mommy, I want to see Daddy Warbucks in another movie. Can you get me? <laughs> Can you get me Tom Jones or like, Two for the Road or, yeah, like, huh? Like, <laughs> what is that about? Yeah, there's a, most most of Albert Finney's filmography is not suitable for children. Um, the, the, I, want to, I do want to give everybody a peek behind the curtain a little bit because originally when Emily and I talked about doing this, uh, you were living down in Georgia. And I was like, have you ever had the treasury? And you said, no, I never had it. And so I sent you scans of, of the magazine format version because it's all the same material. And, and I was yeah. like, well, that's, that's, you know, like the, it's, it's not ideal because I'd like to be talking treasury to treasury, but, but that's, it's the best we could do. Well, but then over the meantime, you've now moved up into this area and I was able to get you the actual treasury, which to me is, it's a completely different experience than it is reading it as scans on a computer. Yes, absolutely. I, I know I'm analog. I'm not old fashioned. Like I'm not a Luddite. Like I'm not afraid of technology, no, but I, podcast, when it comes to so. books. Books, right? Books, comic books, like those are things I like, if at all possible, to like have in my hand. And this is something because it's such an unusual format that I think just really like there's just something special. Again, you're just holding it in your hand, like, aha, I have something very large. That must mean it's great. You know, it just feels fun yeah. to have this big thing to hold and flip and. And you know, and I, I don't think the the warm the warmness of that art that we were talking about, just that that beauty of those colors. I'm sure it looks fine to see it on a computer too, but there's just something special about seeing it on like, you know, these gently aged pages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly um, what I figured, and so that's why once I realized that you were you were around, I was like, I gotta get you the treasury. That way, we can be talking about the exact same thing. And there is something specific to the treasure that I want to mention that is very very funny to me is the last two pages of the book are devoted to ad material. There's a, there's a subscription ad, and then on the back cover, <laughs> there is an ad for Marvel Comics. And for anybody of of my age and a little bit younger, you're very familiar with you you know this ad. It's a giant close up of the Hulk. <laughs> with his fist in the frame and his teeth are gritted and it just says power 
Marvel Comics <laughs> is power, and it is meant to be scary. It's meant because it, it, it's drawn by Al Milgram, and it's this it's as close to the Hulk as you can get. His hair is barely in the frame. It's just his face and his fist, and it's meant to be scary. And it it is the most inappropriate ad to put on the back cover for a comic book aimed at small little girls. Like, like of all the Marvel house ads for them to run, that is the wrong one. And I love that. Like, probably nobody at Marvel was paying attention. They were like, "Oh, just run the power ad. That'll be fine." It's like, are you out of your mind? It's funny. I've looked at this several times and looked at this ad and thought about this ad. I did not know it was a notorious one. But it's just now that you're saying that, I'm realizing that, like, some six-year-old girl, like, probably screamed when she shut it. Totally, completely, totally inappropriate. Of all the house ads for that, I mean, it has a a, a subscription (laughs) ad, too, and that subscription ad has a bunch of the Marvel characters all huddled around. And and they're all it's all kind of like lighthearted and comical and that's fine but the, that Al Milgram ad is just totally wrong and so it's like you guys couldn't put something else back there that, that's just you know that's just hysterical to me so well I'm glad or, you what's like, even better I don't oh, I'm sorry I, was, I, I bet at least one person I don't know how many but I bet at least one person did indeed subscribe from this Annie Marvel Treasury Edition. <laughs> And I wish I could talk to them now and be like so you were reading Annie and then you saw the Hulk and went. Marvel's the one for me. Yeah, really. What did you subscribe to? Was it Dazzler? Maybe that features a girl. Was it GI Joe? Was it Master of Kung Fu? What what, what appealed to you after reading the Annie Treasury? Well, I'm I'm glad I I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad I got to introduce it to you because like I try and toggle the show between guests of people that are familiar with this format and love it the way I do, but then I also like introducing it to somebody that was unfamiliar with it and especially since you loved annie so much what are the odds that there is an annie treasury edition but i knew there was and i knew <laughs> that if i was ever going to talk about there was never going to talk about it on the show other than with you so i'm glad that you enjoyed it <laughs> thank you i'm glad you introduced me to it i'm glad i got to uh, hold it for myself Awesome. That's what I said. It's it's a lot of fun, and it's, I'm glad that you know the book is still out there. I mean, it's never been reprinted anywhere. It's one of those just forgotten things that Marvel did. But hey, you know they 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 realized it would be important for little kids. Uh, they would enjoy it, and even though you're not a little kid anymore, you still enjoyed it. So it's still good. Mission accomplished, Marvel. <laughs> Perfect way to end it. So awesome. Well, Emily, thank you so much for for coming on Treasure Cast. Thank you so much for coming on Film and Water. This was great doing two shows back to back about Annie. I didn't think that was possible, but this was a whole lot of fun. So thank you so much. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, you can, if you just, I'm sure we'll talk about Annie at some point in the future on my own show. Um, so if you just, you know, can't get enough, find me there. <laughs> Uh, at um, VOCNation.com. I co-host a show um, with my significant other, Dean Compton, called Her Dirk World, His Dirk World. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at HDWHDWRadio, uh, same on Instagram, uh, and that's our name on Facebook. So check us out, and I will reference this movie at some point. I can guarantee that. All right. I look forward to it. That'll be awesome. So, again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I want you to stay tuned. And after some podcast promos, I'm going to do listener feedback. Hi, I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren of the Rad Adventures Network. We're a married couple who enjoy great stories of all kinds, including adventures, mysteries, science fiction, and fantasy. Please join us for a variety of podcasts focused on a range of pop culture topics. 
Trekker Talk is about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. It's a blend of classic sci-fi adventures and noir mysteries set in a retro future. Xenozoic Xenophiles is about the comic Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Warlord Worlds covers the many comics of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion of Superheroes. Sensational Sluice, where we talk about favorite mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. Fantastic Fantasies, where we share our favorite fantasy films and books. And Amazing Adventures, where we discuss action-packed adventure stories. Listen on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit RadAdventuresNetwork.com to find all of our shows and links to our social media pages. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. Hello. Do you enjoy movie scores? Do you like science fiction? Do you like fantasy? And do you like movies? Uh, uh, everything's under control, situation normal. What happened? Uh, it had a slight weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Well, I have a podcast for you. Soundtrack Alley. It's a podcast where I take you on a journey through the time of my childhood and beyond to give you a glimpse into the world of movies, science fiction, fantasy, and other films that touch me on a personal level. You'll also enjoy interviews from film composers from famous movies from the past or even current times. Enjoy the interaction I have with guests on my show every so often, and check out other shows that share in guest spots. So sit back, relax, and let the soundtrack world wash over you, and check out Soundtrack Alley. You'll love it. And we're back with some listener feedback. And first up, I want to start with an iTunes review. We have an iTunes review. Uh, it is uh, it says, Giant Days, five stars. It says, Once upon a time, DC, Marvel, and a few other comic companies regularly released tabloid editions collecting their greatest stories. Bigger art, extra features, they were something special. Now, as one uh, or two companies begin dipping their corporate toes into the Treasury Edition water once more, Rob Kelly and guests discuss their favorites. So whether you're in the mood for nostalgic story swapping or tips as to the best of 2017, this is a show to treasure, and that is from Martelex. And uh, yeah, as you might have figured out, this review is from February 12th, 2017. It's from Great Britain, so that indicates that I need to check 
the reviews from other countries uh, a little more often than I do. So apologies, Martin Lex, for not reading this wonderful uh, five-star review before this. But I do appreciate it, so thank you. And like I said, I will do a better job at keeping up on the iTunes reviews from other countries. So thank you very much. And now let's go on to the feedback for the last episode, which was episode 31, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes with Russell Burbage. And these are comments from the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. First up says Ange. He says, yay, Legion, yay, Russell. You would think if DC was thinking of putting in a Silver Age story, the Sun Eater story would be much more Legion-y than this one, and it had a heavy dose of Superboy to boot. While I love more Drew, this isn't the best story to showcase him. That said, so much is tossed into the soup, as you say. Insect Queen and Honorary Legionnaires, the White Witch, who hadn't yet made her big Legion splash at Mordrew, and finally the other Legionnaires at the end. You can see some crumbs of the big buffet of Legion stuff here. I love the Ultra Boy story Russell mentions because it includes one of my favorite little-used Legion foes, Ben Paris. Ben Pears? I don't know. The Unstoppable Thief. That is right in the sweet spot of the run that introduced me to the Legion. That is Superboy 213. I consider 211 my first issue. Anyway, love the Legion so love hearing Rob having to talk about it. <laughs> I, I don't know if I had to talk about it, but I, I enjoy talking about it. So thank you, Ange. David Is Gutierrez says, did Rob just get won over by the Legion? Is he waffling, lad? Uh, Edo Boznar says, never had either of the Legion treasuries as they never showed up in any of the magazine racks near me back in the 70s. But I can say that I always wanted them based on some of those beautiful covers. Although, based on the rundown and your excellent discussion, it seems I didn't miss much with this one. By the way, closing off the show with that version of That's Entertainment, sang by Mordrew in The Legends of the Superheroes, was a real deep dive into pop culture ephemera well played. Yeah, I, I, I just, I'm so tickled by the fact that Mordrew like was presented in live action like that's and they did it pretty faithfully too he's got the the weird hat with the little wings and the beard like they it really does he really does look like the comic book version it's just amazing i think the song runs a little too long it's like four minutes but i just couldn't bear to edit it so thank you ado for appreciate appreciating that Nicholas Prom from the Comic Reflections podcast says, Rob talking about the Legion? It's like hell has frozen over. Looking forward to listening to this, Robin. Ahem, I'd be more than happy to come on to talk about the other Legion treasury. I do want to get to that one at some point. That actually is both a treasury comic and a mountain comic. Uh, so I have to decide which show I want to do it on. And and that's a that's a pretty good book. So we, we will get to that eventually. So uh, Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous from a Girl blog says, thanks for a great episode. It's always great to hear Russell. Boy, those treasury sure had shrunk by then. Just two reprints and a few feature pages. What a cover, though. You can't beat a fly past by the Legion. I agree the story wasn't the most obvious fit if they were out for new readers, but how many people weren't who weren't familiar with the Legion would shell out that amount of money? I reckon the treasury was a gift to the fans. Myself, I cannot get enough of Smallville set stories. I don't consider them any sillier than any superhero story. A hero has to live somewhere, and a hero has to have colorful enemies and friends. I wish DC would just restore Superman's career as a young public hero. Thank you, Martin. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that, that maybe that... The, the Legion treasure wasn't meant to get new fans as it was to simply sell it to established fans of the comic book. Uh, my pal Chris Franklin from our network says, First Rob warms up to the Legion, then he admits he likes a Kurt Swan art piece. Hope has returned in 2019. Fun episode, guys. Always a pleasure to hear one of the nicest guys in the known multiverse, Russell Burbage, on the network. Of course, Alex Ross recreated this awesome grill cover for the Tabloids and Treasuries issue of Back Issue magazine, and I was proud to have an article in that issue. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I can't believe I forgot to mention that. I knew it, and I should have mentioned it, because obviously it's, it's relevant to our discussion. So thank you for pointing that out. I can't believe I blanked on that. Uh, Boston Moss says, Egads, Rob doing a Legion podcast and closing out with Mordrew's big musical number? It's either April Fool's or the world must be coming to an end. 
again, I thank you, Boston, for appreciating that really deep dive cut in the, at the end of the show. Says Goyd from our network says, everyone seems to have fallen for Shag's fake news that Rob hates the Legion. He just never read it as a kid, folks. It's like saying I hate Grimjack or something. How would I know? I've never read it. So when he said the Outsiders are terrible, you know I did read them. On the brief discussion about maimed comics, I have those too. Very early on, I cut out some heads from a few covers so I could fool around with basing them on top of other characters' heads. I don't feel great about it today, but I'm not about to throw those old comics away. Yeah, there was a point, uh, I, I agree with that, Cisco, and I relate to that. There was a point where I actually did throw out some of the comics that I had cut up as a kid because I was like, oh, they're not complete anymore, and now I wish I had them again. So there's that weird, you know, Uncanny Valley thing where they're, they're just maimed. They're not valuable to you sentimentally. And then you get even older and you're like, oh, no, I wish I had them again. So I wish I hadn't gotten rid of those. Ward Hill Terry says, I just got this one recently within the last 20 years. For my collection, that's recent. Sometime around the turn of the century, having not collected comics for almost 10 years, I decided to seek out only comics with the real JSA and the Legion. I got this tabloid at a shop for probably less than $10. At this point, I thought it was cute. Uh, I thought it was a cute Jim Shooter story with some nice character bits, especially Pete Ross. It also changed my mind about Jack Abel. I never liked Abel's inking. What he did to Buckler's covers was disappointing. What he did to Dick Ayer's Freedom Fighters was exasperating. What he did to Sermon's Legion was criminal. Then I saw that splash, and I thought that he must have been better when he was younger, until I heard Russell say that it was all Kurt Swan. Good. I love Kurt Swan. I don't want any reason to stick up for Jack Abel. It's just because the last panel of the story is ruined by his artwork on the eyes of the three girls. Yuck. A few years later, this became a favorite comic of my young daughter. She took real interest in the Treasury Editions and subsequently is still a Legion lover today. We read this one often. It's a good story for a kid, and it's a good story for having been written by a kid. That's fantastic, Ward. I love that your, your daughter loves the, the Treasury comics. That's super cool. I love pictures of, of kids reading Treasury comics. It really highlights like how big they are and stuff. So I love seeing like vintage photos like that. Gothos Manchin says, first off, Rob didn't put the Legion of Superheroes song by Morju in this podcast. Legends of the Superheroes was just a bad dream. It never really happened, so Rob couldn't have put a song from it in the podcast, even if he wanted. <laughs> Grell's cover is spectacular, and it is a shame that every member featured was not inside. Looking at the beautiful cover really makes the reader curious about who some of these people are. I do know most of their names, but not a lot of their history. The cover makes me want to read about them. I always wish DC had raised the prices on the treasury instead of slashing the page count, but that isn't unique to this treasury. One last closing comment. Legends of the Superheroes was just a bad dream. Legends of the Superheroes never really happened. <laughs> I appreciate you not willing to die on that hill, Gothas. And Mike Deans said... Excellent episode, guys. Even as a child of the 70s, the format I did enjoy was a Blue Ribbon DC Digest, best of DC number 35 being my favorite. Shout out to Digest Cast. But I never owned a treasury. I'm not sure if I, ever, if I never found them or just never noticed them. How could you not notice them, Mike? But it is certainly something I wished I had missed. I finally picked up my first treasury in the last couple of years, and it happened to be this particular Legion book. And the only reason I was searching for any treasury comic was simply because of this podcast. The enjoyment for this format is what made me want to explore this format, so thank you for converting me to the treasury format. In Makes me want to find more. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Mike. Yeah, I, I hope that my enthusiasm for this format comes through in every episode, even if the book itself is maybe not really one of my favorites. But yeah, I just you know I just love looking at books at this size, which actually you could probably even get from our, our talk with Emily about the Annie Treasury. I still love the book, even though it's an Annie Treasury. Um, Liz Ann Oswald says, "Cool podcast. Yeah, more Jew is an awesome villain. Not a great hat. Still, he's cool." Uh, Joan Rivers would have loved his outfit, and it was cool to hear Rob uh, like a Legion of Superheroes comic. Can't wait for the next podcast. Well, thank you, uh, Liz Ann. 
And then uh, Mark leaves a comment. He says, uh, I was in a Woolworths department store when my aunt, and I saw this guy tearing covers off the issue in the Superman versus Flash book. Unsold inventory, I assume. He's tearing covers off and throwing them into this bin. I see the bright colors and stop the stare. He says, you want some? He hands me both comics, and I left the store a very happy six-year-old. The micro cover is one of my favorites of all time, uh, favorite of all time comic book images. This is the Legion to me. I disagree with how hard the story would have been for a kid to understand. I think stories like this work much better with a younger reader. My first comic featured the composite Superman. He was a villain who had powers of the Legion of Superheroes from the 30th century. Superman was a member of that team, and he was a boy. Say what? Made sense to me at six. A few years ago, a co-worker wanted to read Crisis and Heaven Earth, so I loaned him my collected edition. He brought it back saying he couldn't read it. It made his head hurt. He couldn't read a single issue. Great podcast. As an aside, I didn't have these books very long. Probably cut the 3D picture out, so I trashed them. Maybe two years later, I was already nostalgic for them. See, there you go. And so I found the ad of the 1976 comic and sent $2 to the address. DC sent back my $2, and they no longer carried it. thought that was pretty decent of them. That. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's sad, Mark. That you got the two dollars return, but again, as you said, it was nice of them to to at least return the money to you. So, uh, yeah, I used to love those ads. I I don't think I ever wrote into DC for for any of those treasuries, but but I was always tempted because the ads were just like, oh, I could catch up on all these books. So again, thanks everybody for the comments on the website fireandwaterpodcast.com. I really appreciate it. And then finally, I'm going to thank everybody who retweeted the show over on Twitter. It helps get every new episode noticed. So big thanks to Supermates Pod, Rad Adventures, Zeno. Zoic Files, Warlord Worlds, Lee Asif, Cal Benningart, Comic Reflection, Once Upon a Geek, Firestone Fan, Jekstrom, Oswald Liz, It's Plastic Man, Factory Romero, Max Romero, Scott Slangword, Classic JLA, Gloria Maria Go 18, BTP Blog, 78 Sherlock, Justice Trek, Bazinga Cal, Jeff Hun 349-11855, BGSU Batman Conference, Legion Blog, and Comics in the Gold Mage. So again, thanks everybody for retweeting the show on Twitter. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for the comments. We had a lot of fun talking with Russell uh, on the Legion episode, and I had a great time talking with Emily today about the Annie Treasury. I'm betting that most of you have not read the Annie Treasury. So I uh, I would suggest go to the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and check out the gallery post where you can see a bunch of images from the book at least. Not the whole book, but you can at least see some of the images that Emily and I are talking about. And I thank her so much for coming on to talk about the book, and thank her again for coming on Film and Water to talk about the Annie movie. It was fun doing a two-parter with her. So, okay, thanks everybody for listening. Until the the next episode, go big or go home. Who's the little chatterbox, the one with pretty auburn locks? Whom do you see? It's little orphan Annie. She and Sandy make a pair. They never seem to have a care. Cute little sheep, this little orphan Annie. Bright eyes, cheeks of rosy glow. There's a store of healthiness handy. Might size, always on the go. If you want to know, Princess Sandy always wears a sunny smile. Now wouldn't it be worth a while if you could be like little orphan Annie. Well, here it is, 5.45 now, and time to see what's happening to orphan Annie after that thrilling final test flight in Professor Kenyon's secret new airplane.